Thank you for listening to Truth in Life, a concise Christian belief series. This class was taught on a Sunday morning at Christ the Word Church because we believe that God's Word is truth and that His truth should shape our lives. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. All right, uh, welcome everybody. Week four, down to three lessons left in this series. So um, today in this class, Attributes of God, we are shifting. I don't want to spend much time reviewing, but you know we did two weeks on knowledge. We did the third week on wisdom. Wisdom follows very naturally after knowledge. We talked about how they were connected and related, but not the same. This week, there's a real shift. We're, we're moving into... I don't know, I don't have a name for it, but um, it's just a different feel. So this week we're talking about power. This, uh, okay, question, is, is power communicable or incommunicable? Communicable. A lot of you are looking at me and saying, yeah, he, he looks pretty powerful. <laughs> um, not, probably not me, but if you look at Jason, you might say, yeah, pretty powerful. Uh, what if I say God is omnipresent, though? Now, communicable, incommunicable? incommunicable. Because the omni prefix rules all of us out no matter what. So today's power. God is omnipresent. We are not, we cannot, you can't be kind of omni anything, right? So um, here is a passage. I don't, I won't focus here, but I hope you're reading it thinking about it. The Lord is omnipresent. He is strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. That's from Psalm 24. So let's open in prayer. God, we pray that you would guide us this morning and help us to understand your power, to love it, and to fear it as appropriate, and to be comforted by it. Pray that you would help us understand this and apply it. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Wisdom. Last week was wisdom. I want to give you an, a, an introductory thought here. We'll flesh this out a little bit as the hour goes on, but I have, I have power. I don't have all power. I have wisdom, but I don't have God's wisdom. But even in my diminished state with both of those attributes, wisdom and power, what happens, or you, not me, you guys, what happens when you combine w your wisdom with your power, your ability to execute, your ability to implement and accomplish? Good things. That's a great combination to have, okay? Wisdom, as you get older and you, and you gain in your wisdom, and you get older and you have more at work, people under you, at home, more children, whatever. In your life, you gain more influence over people. Your sphere of influence expands, right? So if you, when you couple that with, with wisdom, and both are growing, it becomes a really great thing. So God, infinite in wisdom, no limitation, all wise, all knowing, when you combine that with his omnipotence, you have God, you have an unstoppable force. Okay, all right. Um, let's define wisdom or define p 
power, God's power. This is a simple way to start. God can do anything he wants. A couple passages. He's unchangeable. Who can turn him back? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Whatever he wants, he can do. That leads to a whole bunch of questions. I'm not saying this is as far as we need to go. That leads to a whole other um, batch of questions, but it's a starting point, okay? God can do anything he pleases. Second, nothing is too hard for God. We could go a whole bunch of places with, with this. I just put one short little example up there from Scripture. I think your handout has other proofs that you could look into. Okay, let's think about these things. He can do anything he pleases and nothing is too hard for God. So the second one takes and builds on the first one, doesn't it, and describes what God can do universally. He not only can do anything he wants, but there is nothing that he can't do. In other words, He's not just playing games. We're not just playing games and saying, well, he can do anything he wants, but he doesn't want to do these things over here. There's nothing that he can't do. So it's, a, it's taking the first one, building on it, and applying it or describing it universally. Thoughts on that? Questions? Anywhere else that you would point us to in God's word that could be helpful? Well, I have a few more thoughts, so we'll do that. There's a term in Hebrew, so in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, this word for God, you guys know there are a bunch of different terms, word names for God, I should say, right? Um, El Shaddai is one of them. It's, it's pretty common. It just means God Almighty. Um, you, there is a uh, song from the 80s. Those of you who are of a certain age are probably already humming it in your head. Is it Sandy? Okay, Sandy, Diane says it's Sandy Patty. Okay. Those are really the same people, aren't they? I don't know. Okay, does anyone want to sing it? No. <laughs> All right, it was really popular in the 80s. So for my childhood, very popular. Um, and it kind of... <laughs> She's over here singing. I am <laughs> Should get it on the recording here. <laughs> All right, it is, uh, it was a... Catchy song, very popular. Now, as I look back on it, what, 40 years later, and, and think, you know, that's, now that I know it means God Almighty, it, the music doesn't line up with the meaning of the term. It's a really sing-songy, soft, um, almost like a whispery kind of, kind of song. But it means God Almighty. It's this, this term that speaks of God's power, his omnipotence. And um, I love it. I'm kind of, every time I've gone through this material, I've made kind of a short plug for bringing back the term almighty in English. I'm not suggesting we 
walk around speaking in Hebrew, but maybe Christians should use the word almighty more than we do because it's not a word that we use for anything else. As opposed to the word awesome, which we do use very frequently and flippantly in ways that don't have anything to do with God's real power. But we don't use the word almighty for anything other than God. And I think in one simple almighty, three-syllable word, we communicate a whole lot. And I think the church has largely lost that. So think about the, um, the word awesome. We use the word awesome all the time. We, I said that. We use, what's the other one? Um, my kids say literally all the time. And it, they do not using it. It's just a pet peeve of mine, but okay. Almighty, on the other hand, it always means this, and it doesn't mean anything else, and we don't use it flippantly anywhere else. So that's a great term to think about and to, and to practice using as we think about God's power. Okay, that's just a soapbox thing. Here's a list. This is a philosophical list, okay? This isn't so much, um, I guess it would fit under theology too, but philosophers have codified this and come up with, with this type of list. It's not an official list, but it's a genu generally agreed upon list of things having to do with God's power. So glance through that, read through it while I talk here. But I want to start by asking a question. What can't God do? There are some things God can't do, even though I just said he's all-powerful. Let's think about that. Melina? Okay, he can't change. He's unchanging. He's immutable. What about can't lie? Okay, good one. God can't lie. Okay, excellent. So starting specific, getting a little bit more broad. Let's expand and be even more broad. Turn that can't sin into a principle. Can't do wrong. Okay. Yep. Bethany? Okay. Yep. We're all on the right track. Aaliyah? Yeah. That, um, all the, the answers are great. She hit on the way my mind thinks and how I would put it. Um, he can't do anything that violates his nature. So he, he, can't, he can't sin. He can't sin in that particular way. Diane? I have a question. If you take two, God cannot do anything logically possible. Does that mean he can do something illogically possible? No. No, I don't think it means that. Okay. Yeah, I don't. Can't die. Can't die, okay. This movie, God is not dead. Okay. But then you get into the whole Jesus died. So yeah. Yeah, a lot of you. And that's in one of our favorite songs, one of the old hymns. Which one is it? About Jesus dying, or God, God dying. No one disputes Jesus died anyway um, wouldn't it be I mean Jesus was God in the form of man and his the part of him that was man died but God himself would not die so like 
That, as man, he died, but as God. That's the more precise theological way to state it, yeah. Technically, theologians would say God didn't die, can't die. Yeah, Bethany? I have a question. Why does it say God can do anything logically possible when God has done all kinds of things that are logically impossible? Raising people from the dead, curing people of incurable diseases. So I, I, mean, I don't want to be, un, you know, annoying, but he can do all these things that are not logically possible. So why is this something that theologians are agreeing on? Because it's more phil philosophers than theologians, and I can't figure out the philosophers. I don't know. I, I think what you're saying is, is right. So we could, we could go into what does it mean biologically, and that could be a whole series. And we did address that because people ask questions like, can God create a block so big that he can't? You know, like yeah, we are going to get to that in just a minute. So I, want, I really want to ask that as a legitimate question. We're just a minute or two away from that. Let's, um, I haven't even started going through this list, though. Remember, I, I want to talk about what, what can't God do? He, so we talked about sin. He can't sin. He can't do anything that's against his nature. Right? Mm -hmm. Can't change. That's another one. Okay, Second uh, Tim Timothy chapter 2 says that he cannot deny himself. Okay, that's another one. Can you think of anything from James, the book of James? It says that God cannot do. Okay, Nathan, yeah, good, that, Melina, that's good. Yeah, he can't be tempted by evil and he tempts no one, okay? I'm just trying to get a bunch of things out on the table as we think about God's power and all the things he can do. Um, we're starting with saying what he can't do. He cannot be tempted with evil. He tempts no one. He can't, here's another one, uh, he cannot change the past. This one's somewhat controversial. Why would we say that he can't change the past? You might sit there and think, well, he could if you wanted to. Why do we say he can't change the past? Yeah. Because he ordained it in the first place. Okay. Good. That makes sense. Anybody want to add to that? Well, if he can't, if he can't change the past, that would imply that his will is not perfect. Yes. Yes, exactly. So if he... If he is immutable and he ordained it and he had all wisdom and all power to implement it and he did this, then changing the past is, it violates that. Okay, so, all right, we'll go to the list now, but just keep in mind, there are some things that he can't do. Balaam said, God is not man, that he should lie. Paul and Timothy said, God cannot deny himself. Um, in James, we learn that God can't be tempted. Um, Another thing, kind of different category, he can't take actions that are appropriate only to finite creatures. So um, this one's really simple. We'll spend just a few seconds here. An example of that, he can't take medicine for a headache. Okay, it just doesn't, it doesn't apply. He can't do things that apply only to finite creatures. That's one silly example, but think more broadly about that and you'll, you'll understand it. 
Okay, so the first category, I would say he can't do immoral things. Second, he can't take actions appropriate only to finite creatures. Another one, Aaliyah brought up, it's, we, you heard her ask, can God make a, a stone that's too large for him to lift? They call that the paradox of the stone. Can he do that? Can God make something too big for him to lift? I see a no. More no's. Any yeses? He can make it. He could make any, but he is all powerful. So even if he made this stone, he could still lift it. There's the paradox. So I think it's actually a somewhat. We could, we could go all kinds of silly directions with this, but it's a valid question, I think, because humans can do that. Can do that. I can make something too heavy for me to lift. Um, why would we say, ever, no one said yes, why would we agree that this can't be done? Well, the stone is a physical thing. God does not live with a physical body. Like, he isn't, he doesn't have, he lives with a physical limitation. The reason why something would be too hard for us to lift is because we are finite on our physical body. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have that limitation. Yeah. I like that answer. I think that's good. Any other thoughts? <coughs> Where would he put it? It would be really, really big. <laughs> that's what I mean. We could go all kinds of silly directions with it, but we won't do that. I'm going to rein myself in. So. We say, theologians say, he can't do that. He can't make something too large for him to lift because of his infinity. His infinity prevents that from happening. Okay, my point, and the reason I was willing to spend quite a few minutes here of what God can't do is to point out that none of these are actually weaknesses. None of the things he can't do are weaknesses. They're actually all strengths. Not being able to violate his nature or do sinful things or compromise in any way, that's a strength. That's not a weakness. None of the things that we would say if we spent all hour talking about what God can't do, at the end of the hour, we wouldn't have anything that would actually be a weakness. They would actually all be strengths. So now let's go back to the, to the list, okay? Number one, God can do whatever he wants. But this isn't just the kids on the playground kind of thing. Now, the guys in here, the men in here, this may resonate with you more than the, more than the women, but you've all been on a playground maybe a long time ago. You were on a playground where you start talking about, my dad can beat up your dad. <laughs> this is not that. This is not God can do whatever he wants, but, you know, my dad can beat up your dad, but... He just doesn't want to, you know, but he could. When we say God can do whatever he wants, we mean something bigger and more meaningful than that. Um, okay, well, we're just going to move down through the list a bit. Diane asked about number two, and um, Bethany did also. This one's, I don't have much to say about this one. This one's, I think, the philosopher's got this one on the list and it's 
not particularly helpful for the content I want to cover. Um, number three, God can do what is possible. That one's sort of a tautology. It's just saying the same thing again, I think. Um, number four, infinite power. We talked about this a bit already. Number five, God has power over all things. Well, he created all things. So when you're the creator of it, you have authority over it, right? Even my kids know this when they build with Legos. It's just the rule. If your brother comes along and smashes what you made with Legos, that's not right because you're the one who made it. God has authority over it because he created it, and he, has, he does have all power to control it and do what he wills with it. So he has power over all things. Number six, more power than anyone else. Okay, that's obvious, but I, I want to point out that this includes Satan. Okay. Redemptive history, history in general, is not a cosmic battle between two powers. That's not the right way to, to think about it. Um, God has God has more power than anyone else, including Satan. Satan is operating under God's control and authority. God can do anything compatible with his attributes. We talked about that one as we discussed what he can't do. Okay. All of this is, is all discussion of God's power should, should point in this direction, though, I think. It's more than physical strength. God doesn't demonstrate his power so we can engage in philosophical games and speculation. There's a purpose behind it. He's all-powerful, he's omnipotent, but there's always a purpose behind it. How does he, how does he demonstrate his power? That's kind of an open-ended question. I don't want it to be a guess what I'm thinking. There are a million right answers here, but I've done a lot of talking. How does God demonstrate his power? Creation, okay. Excellent. Huge. Yeah. Uh, God talked about how he brought a people out of Egypt and made them his own people, boasting about Israel. Yeah, good, excellent. I'm, I don't think I heard what you said. <coughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Miracles, yeah, power over nature, the laws of nature. Good. Personal salvation in the lives of people now. Yeah. Great. So, big, you know, things like creation, but making it personal, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. So just again, as was said, 
demonstrating his power over the laws of nature. Good. Bethany? Well, and perhaps we could also think about hard things, like a thought that came to my mind was like Dr. Forney having cancer. All, the, all his life he loved the Lord and brought people to the Lord through his teachings and, and served the Lord in his vocation, and he has cancer now, but there's a purpose behind it. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone that was here when he stood up and gave his testimony, even though it was challenging for him, it was edifying. It was encouraging to see that this terrible physical thing has not brought this man away from where he's always physically loved the Lord and mm -hmm. his great glory to God. And so there, there's, in hard things, there's purpose too. Not just really amazing, awesome things like party rescue, although that is yeah, I'm really happy that we're touching on a variety of things here because that's a that's a really important one, and Dr. Forney is a great example of it. Does anybody who is here fail to see God's power in Dr. Forney being up there and what he preached that morning? I mean, we we know that's evidence of God's power. Okay, so my question was, how does he demonstrate his power? Great, broad answers. I appreciate that. I would just add that, um, well, he demonstrates his power in many ways every day in our lives. Uh, one that hasn't been mentioned yet is in his word. He demonstrates it in his word. He reveals his power to us in his word, in, in scripture. Um, the purpose being, again, everything... All, every demonstration of his power has purpose behind it. So the purpose in his word often is to edify his people. Think of 2 Timothy 3, the passage saying that, it's, that scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Okay, there's a purpose behind it. And God demonstrates his power to us in his word. He reveals his power to bring glory to himself. And all of us have experiences with that. You're welcome to share if you want. And it, where, where God revealed his power in your life, not to puff you up or to build you up, but to point to him, to point to his son, to bring glory to himself. Right? I think we all have experiences with that. And he displays his power, most importantly, in redemption. I will come back to that in a moment. Yes, Leanne. Uh, I, this is all really wonderful to think about, but I, there's no way for us to examine, for instance, uh, God's purpose because he has an eternal perspective and a uh, omniscient perspective that we will never have. And so... You know, why wasn't, when Judas said, I'm sorry, why wasn't that an illustration, why couldn't that have been used as an illustration of forgiveness to edify people? Mm -hmm. But I don't know, I mean, God had a, a more holy purpose behind that. I think I understand what you're getting at, and I think it's a great point. We don't know, we don't, we don't understand the purpose all the time. 
even when I think I do, I could be wrong about the, the purpose because I don't see everything. I don't have all of his wisdom and understanding. But we do know that it does have a purpose, even if I, even if I can't say conclusively what that purpose is, I have a good sense of it, and oftentimes I think I'm right, and years later I look back on it and I still think I'm right, but yeah, the point here though is that there is purpose. It's oftentimes beyond us, it's oftentimes hidden from us, I don't know for sure, but he does have a purpose. It's not, so if I go back to the list and, you know, number, number one, he's not just capriciously doing whatever he wants. There's purpose behind it. We good there? Yeah. For anyone, here's something I've struggled with, is the idea of uh, when it says there'll be no tears in heaven. And I keep coming up with the conclusion that God will have to do something with our memory. Because all of us know of people who, when we get there, let's say my daughter, my son, my husband, my wife, my friend didn't make it. I can't help but think that's going to be some type of sorrow. And I can't help also but think he's going to have to do something with our memory in the sense that surely we'd be saddened by such things. So is he going to, is being in heaven be such an amazing thing that it will overshadow any sorrow that we have? Or yeah, well, he's, the Bible I says that he'll wipe every tear from our eyes. So there are tears. And then, you know, I'm not prepared to answer that this morning. I don't know. That's a, it's well, an interesting. I think what we can say is that um, Abraham and Lazarus saw the, the man. so holy as they are not here that we can't help God doesn't have any sorrow over the wicked that are in hell and so I think what we have to say is not that we won't know it or we'll forget about it it's not just blindness in heaven that causes us to be happy it's actually an alignment with what is right so we can't understand that here and I think that speaks to part of what Mrs. Bernstein is saying we can't understand it that's why it necessitates faith because we know there is a purpose but we don't know what it is and yeah, I think that's helpful. All right, we have not spent a lot of time in Scripture this week. I want to point to a couple passages. Um, from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 25. Uh, first, though, here's... Here's a quote. This is a British theologian. It is tempting to think of God as a Herculean figure able to outlift, outthrow, outrun all his opponents. Such a theology would be one of physical or metaphysical power. Whatever his enemies can do, God can do it better or more efficiently than they. So he's saying it's tempting to think of God like that, but he goes on to say the Christian view of providence reveals not only the power of God, but his weakness also. And again, always driving toward a purpose, always purpose behind it. So 
I, I picked this quote because it brings this idea of weakness in, which Bethany mentioned too, and I want to focus here for a couple minutes. Okay, the 1 Corinthians 1.25 passage, if you turn there, you'll see it. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Remember last week we talked about wisdom and how God turns worldly wisdom on its head and his, his wisdom is just outside of our way of thinking about wisdom. So here's another, this, this is kind of the same thing, power. God says that his weakness is stronger than men. So how is God weak? In what ways is God weak? Think in the same categories that we used last week with wisdom. Okay, this is the type of thing I'm driving at. Maybe this helps get your juices flowing. The cross is weakness, right? So the weakness of God is stronger than men. What would be some other examples of the weakness, maybe you want to put quotes around the weakness. Jonathan? Well, I think it's, uh, I don't think it's true that God has weakness. I think it's really, weakness is really demonstrated especially in the incarnation, in him becoming man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is condescension in general? Good. Other thoughts? Think we're, I want us thinking about 1 Corinthians one twenty-five. The weakness of God is stronger than men. So in what ways does Paul in that letter mean that the weakness that God's... That's all right. Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. I was trying to find something by Piper. Are you trying to, I'm not sure if this is right, but are you trying to say that like the world looks at the things that God does and looks at them as if they're wrong or weak or foolish? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that type of thing. Just first, the passage from 1 Corinthians, what, what would be an example of that? When Paul says the weakness of God is stronger than men, what is he talking about? Nathan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yep, that sort of thing. I'm just, I want to use my red pen and write something down, but I, I can't some, make that short enough. Jesus, yeah. Jesus asking the 12 disciples to be his inner sanctum and submit, you know what I mean? Like yeah. bringing those guys along with him and the fact that they weren't, they were fishing, some were fishermen, but they weren't all doctors. You, you mm-hmm. Yes. Obviously, God's no fool. Mm-hmm. You know, the point is not that he's weak or a fool. The point is <laughs> the opposite, actually. Exactly. So this really is the same 
same point I made last week, I'm just now applying it to power. Same thing that we did with wisdom. Melina? I think that's a, that's a good one because according to the worldly way of thinking, that's, that's weak. Not everyone would say that, but there are a lot of people would. Yes, good. Poverty. Um, not warfare. Not money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the Bible's full of full of that concept. This is what I. Good examples. That's the kind of thing I'm getting at. And I think Paul is getting at in, in 1 Corinthians, the weakness of God is stronger than men. How about preaching? Standing up and talking, proclaiming something for half an hour, 45 minutes. By worldly standards, that's not, that's not powerful. But God accomplishes his, his goal through preaching. Earlier, someone mentioned suffering, okay? Also not powerful. So this type of weakness, all this stuff, this is where we find God's power really on display. So we can do all things. He has the power to do things that, that blow our minds, but he usually shows us his power in the midst of weakness. We would all say God can still do, you know, huge miracles. He could... He could do another creation. He could, he could do all of that, right? That's kind of what we were saying 20 minutes ago in the, in the list. He could do all of this stuff, but today, in my life, in your life, and throughout so many examples in Scripture, he's doing it through this sort of thing. He's doing it through suffering. He's doing it through difficulty. Um, that's usually how he shows us his power. So we all, in our worldly way of thinking, we have expectations for power. Think about when a, when a new president is elected. We have, you know, if he's part of your party who you voted for, you immediately have so many expectations. You want him to do this and this and this because you think he can. You know he can do a lot of big things. So you have expectations. You want to see him do that. But God overturns all those expectations, and he works this way. Yeah, great example. So I don't, when I emphasize this sort of thing, I don't mean to diminish things like Pentecost. He did that right after giving them the speech about, you know, like she's saying, real power. So I see 
real physical evidence of his power in my life all the time too. But day in, day out, as God works his will in my life, my family's life, this church's life, he's using suffering. He's using suffering in the lives of so many people in our church right now. And as I talk to them, I don't, I don't sense any doubt in their minds of God's power. Their suffering is not contradicting any of this. In fact, it's evidence of his power because they sense it, they know it, they're living it. And I've gone through times where that's been the case too. I'm sure you have. So God overturns all our expectations and redemption is the, is the greatest example of that. Um, God, I only have a minute left. I'm going to wrap up here. But redemption itself, the whole arc of redemption throughout history, the fact that it took thousands of years to accomplish could be seen by, in worldly thinking, as lack of power. Why did it take thousands of years, 4,000 years, 5,000 years, for that to happen? Um, so that seems like weakness, but it's not. He sent his son, not in power, but in weakness and poverty, and then sent him to die on the cross. Um, God's work is rarely surrounded by the sort of power that we expect, that I expect. And it, it ends up overturning all my expectations. And it's bigger, and it's better, and it's more wonderful in every way. But it's not how I think. So we have to reshape our thinking and bring it into conformity with God's word. If I had time, I'd, I'd spend three or four minutes on Ephesians 3. This is my favorite prayer in scripture. I memorized it 25 years ago and it stuck with me ever since. Um, just talks about, you guys are familiar with it. It talks about God's power all through here. It's really powerful, but then at the end, that power is at work within us. So first we have to reshape our thinking and bring that into conformity with God's word and then realize that that power, God's omnipotent power, is at work in us, accomplishing his will in our lives, sanctifying us, um, ordering everything in our lives for his glory and for our good. Thank you, guys. Great comments. Um, I appreciate it. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, thank you for demonstrating your power in our lives. I pray that we would see more of it. Give us a glimpse into it. Let us experience it, um, not because we want to see cool things, but because we want to see people saved and we want to see our families love you and serve you. May we all experience this. Give us the joy of it. Guide us now as we enter into worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Truth in Life. If you enjoy this series, make sure to subscribe. And remember, this is truth to live by.